Hello and welcome to the National Secular Society podcast. I'm Chris Sloggett, Communications Officer at the NSS. In this episode, we'll be discussing the ethics of male circumcision after a BBC documentary shone a spotlight on the issue. But first, Alistair Lichton talks to Andrew Moffat, the teacher who devised a programme for inclusive education and has faced a backlash from religious groups. Andrew, welcome to the NSS podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. You're delivering the 2019 Bradlaw Lecture. Uh, would you say this is the greatest honour of your life? <laughs> Absolutely. I would say, well, well that and... That's great to hear. <laughs> that and being, uh, I was once uh, featured in the interval of a uh, Eurovision Song Contest. And so I think that's sort of, a, it's on a par with that, I think. Okay, so definitely top two. Definitely top two. The topic of this year's lecture is No Outsiders. Can you give the audience a quick rundown of what No Outsiders is? Yeah, certainly. So No Outsiders is a, it's a primary school resource and it basically teaches children uh, to, uh, it prepares them for life in modern Britain. So it teaches children about the world that we live in today, which is a diverse world. It prepares children to be global citizens because in, in the UK today and in the world today, our children need to be able to work alongside and live alongside anybody. It doesn't matter if you have, you know, different colour skin or have a different religion or, you know, have disabilities or if you're gay or lesbian or transgender or, or if you speak a different language, you know, um, I can work alongside you. And that's what we want to teach our children, make them confident global citizens. Okay, so it's not a secret sinister plot to turn five-year-olds gay as part of cultural Marxist conspiracy to destroy religious family values. Well, yeah, that has been sort of level, possibly not the Marxist bit, but uh, no, yeah, I have read that. Uh, yeah, that I have a yeah, secret agenda. I do have an agenda, actually. My agenda is very clearly it's community cohesion, and I'm um, very confident about that. So, so I, so I'm clear about that. I do have an agenda, but um, no, I don't think you can make children gay. Funnily enough, um, no, no one made me gay, um, and. Um, yeah, so no, that's not really not in my uh, in my scheme of things. What do you think are some of the challenges in creating and then defending uh, a robust, inclusive school ethos, uh, particularly when you have strong conservative views within the school community? Yeah, well, uh, you may have seen on the on the news recently that there's been some uh, huge challenges uh, to this work in my own school in the last six months. Now, funnily enough. Those challenges weren't around for the last four years, uh, and that gives me confidence that, that, that this work is possible, that we can do this work, because it's only in the last six months that this, is, this, is, this has come about. Maybe those challenges were always there in the background, but they were, certainly weren't surfacing. So the challenges really today for schools today is to work out a way to bring everyone on board. And that is why I wrote No Outsiders, actually. Um, and I, I went to that school deliberately four years ago because I thought there might be challenges to some of this work and I wanted to get it right and I wanted to work with a with a community who I thought maybe might find some tension with with, with some aspects of this work specifically LGBT I'll be honest and uh, and the reason why I wrote No Outsiders was to try and find a way to to place LGBT inequality in context in schools with all of the qualities and and try to sit it alongside and to, to, to teach children that that it's no more important than any other equality, but also no less important. So that's why I wrote No Outsiders four years ago. 
and I wrote it uh, when I first joined Parkfield School. Um, and it's been incredibly successful. But I think what the last six months show is that um, you know <laughs> this work is not done, and uh, and there is a there is a massive need for this work. And uh, I think that uh, I was maybe maybe naive about thinking that I had this sussed. Um, I think that uh, the last six months demonstrates how important this work is in schools. Do you think that community schools, so those are schools that don't have you know, really clearly defined and protected ethos in the same way that faith schools do, kind of uh, either lack the confidence or find it difficult to, you know, to set out and say, this is our ethos, this is, you know, at this school we value these things and we promote these values? Because I, I noticed the subtitle of Now Outsiders is Reclaiming Radical Ideas in Schools. Oh, well, that's a different book, but yeah, but yes, but I, 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 so I've got two resources. Uh, so the first one, the main one is No Outsiders. And then I, and then two years later, I wrote Reclaim Radical Ideas because I wanted to, I, I, the idea that really was saying that as schools, we are becoming the radical ones because we are saying community cohesion works, uh, you know, we can be different, we can coexist. And at the same time, we're almost battling, you know, with Brexit and Donald Trump and, you know, um, a new prime minister today that talks about Muslim women, uh, with letterboxes, you know, for goodness sake, you know. So, you know, if this language becomes acceptable, uh, you know, filtering down into our communities, then then teachers fighting for community cohesion are, are becoming the radical ones. So that's why I wrote that word, uh, that, uh, that, that's, why, that's where that title came from. Hmm. But in, in answer to your original question, um, no, I, I, my experience is that teachers, teachers generally are very confident about this kind of work. And there's actually nothing new about this work, is there, really? Uh, teachers have been teaching this kind of stuff for, for, for many, many years. Uh, and many schools are very confident in teaching about equality. But what No Outsiders does, it gives it a framework and, and gives it a, a, a new sort of um, a language to use to tie it all together. And maybe in the past... Maybe some schools would have been nervous about teaching about LGBT equality, for example. Certainly in many schools I, I've been in the past, that was the case. But what No Outsiders enables schools to do is teach LGBT equality within a framework, in a context, with, with, with all the other protected characteristics of the, uh, of the Equality Act. The Bradnell Lecture often takes a look at issues that are both historic and contemporary. What do you think is the best historical parallel to today's protests against RSE? You know, I was reminded when uh, the first protest that we had at my school, which was a deafening, frightening, uh, you know, 300 children chanting outside my school, get Mr Moffat out uh, over and over again. Children you know, banging on windows at the school with placards. Um, it was really frightening. And I was reminded of a lesson that I teach every, uh, every year. We teach in year six and we teach about Elizabeth Eckford. Elizabeth Eckford was one of the Little Rock Nine uh, in, um, in Arkansas in the US. Uh, and it's a story about segregation uh, when schools started to, um, to desegregate. And this school in Little Rock um, uh, was uh, basically, there were nine uh, black students that had to bust in um, under the National Guard 
to be protected in that school. And there was a massive demonstration against them. And Elizabeth missed the bus, but she was so determined to go to school that she walked through that down the block. She walked into school herself. And there's a really famous photo that I show the children every year of Elizabeth with, with her, uh, her books. And she's, she's like got her books close to her chest and she's walking through a mob and there's a woman spitting at her and there's like a mobs and they're chanting and shouting at her. And uh, but she carried on, she went into school. And when I show the children at the end of that lesson, we talk about, you know, the impact on Elizabeth and why, why do people are shouting that and why didn't they want to sit next to a black person? Why didn't they want black kids in their school? You know, and where those ideas come from, but also how can those ideas change? Because now in the US, you haven't got schools like that. You know, schools are where black and white kids sit together. So how does that change happen? And the way that the plenary is a lesson, I'll show a photo of Elizabeth next to the woman that spat at her, but 40 years later, and they're hugging, you know, outside the school. And it shows that ideas can change. You know, that woman now uh, now campaigns with Elizabeth, Elizabeth Eckford uh, and goes into schools to do talks. And, and she's changed her mind because all ideas can change. You know, anyone can change their mind. And when the children at my own school had those protests against me and against LGBT people in school, I just thought, wow, the parallels here are phenomenal. These are huge parallels here, you know, and, and what I want to happen and what I hope will happen in years to come is that people will remember these, you know, the, uh, the children in vulnerabilities will remember, you know, this time and, uh, and will change their minds, will change their minds because anyone can change their mind. You just have to get through dialogue and discussion. We, we can hope. Uh, before we go, and especially for those who might not be able to make it to the lecture, can you give us a little bit of hope do you think that inclusive piracy is going to be successful? Is it, how is it going to win over, or, you know, even just overcome this minority of hardcore opposition? Oh, I'm I, I'm full of hope. My, my uh, CEO Hazel Pulley, the head teacher, had this phrase when it back start, back when it started, and she said she has a reservoir of hope. And I think that's a really good line. I like to use that line because I do have a reservoir of hope. Because you know, um, we're not going back, people, are we? You know, we're not going back to you know even thirty years ago in the nineteen eighties when you know you were not allowed to talk about LGBT people in schools. You know, um, you know we've moved on from that now. Um, and I tell you what really gives me hope, Alistair, is that is that this on the news this morning when recording this day, the news this morning is about a school in Nottinghamshire where um, uh, some of the protesters from Birmingham have gone to this school and are standing outside with placards in the same way they did with, uh, with my school. And there's like 12 of them outside the school saying, stop sexualization of children and all this. But you know what's really, really good is that parents in that school walked into the school past them with rainbow flags. Parents walked in, you know, they were not put off and they walked past them and, and there's footage of them all over the news and Sky News this morning, I've seen it, but parents are saying, these ideas don't belong here. You know, the, uh, we want our children to be educated. And that gives me hope because that shows that, yes, there's difficulties, there's challenges, but that's good, isn't it? It's, it, it's, it's good because it means that this dialogue, uh, this debate is happening nationally now. Uh, you know, it's not under the carpet. You know, it's, it's out there. So let's talk about it. Let's work together. You know, I'm absolutely confident that we can find a way forward. You know, I know how this is going to end. It's going to end with all schools doing this work. Maybe not no outsiders, but all schools doing, doing work around equality. It, it, it might take a couple of years. It might take five years, six years. But 
it will happen because what's the alternative? The alternative is for schools to say, well, okay, you don't belong and schools aren't going to say that. That's right. That's a really uh, great uh, note to leave it on. Obviously, we have links to all those stories in the show notes. And Andrew, we look forward to discussing this in more detail at the Bradlow Lecture. Thanks so much. Thank you. So now we turn to the issue of male circumcision. Historically, religious groups, particularly Jews and Muslims, have been given carte blanche to cut the genitals of healthy boys to fit in with long-standing traditions. But now there are signs of change on the issue. The release of the recent BBC documentary, A Cut Too Far, was the latest sign that the tide may gradually be turning on this issue. Shortly after the documentary was published, the NSS's CEO, Stephen Evans, had a piece published in The Independent, arguing that medically unnecessary infant genital cutting should end. Stephen joins me now, along with our campaign's officer, Megan Manson. Hello. Hello. Hiya. Um, So, Stephen, uh, defenders of male circumcision often say this is a religious freedom issue. Uh, Your argument is that they've got a blinkered view of religious freedom, uh, what actually, what does, what religious freedom means and what it involves. Uh, Would you mind just explaining why? Sure. Well, it is for sure that those advocating for the right to cut children, for them, this is an issue of religious freedom. Uh, they want the right to do this for religious reasons. And certainly when Iceland proposed legislation to outlaw infant circumcision uh, last year, religious leaders across Europe united uh, to claim this was an attack on religious freedom. But of course, as is so often the case with these sort of things, they're only really looking at that from their own narrow point of view. Uh, there seems to be an assumption, I think, on their part that children don't have human rights too, but the reality is that children do have rights. They have the right to bodily integrity, uh, to be protected from harm. They Absolutely, they have their right to uh, their own independent religious freedom too. Um, And, you know, circumcision, don't forget, is in many ways a stamp of religious identity on a child. It's an irreversible marker of identity. So clearly you see that we have some sort of clash of rights developing here. So as a society, I think we need to balance competing rights and freedoms and not forget to consider the rights of the child. So Stephen, what you're really saying here ties in with a lot of what we, the points that we were making at our recent Secularism 2019 conference, where we were saying religious freedom is a qualified right and it's a right that actually belongs to everybody. Um, and you don't have the right to impose your view of religious freedom on others. Is, is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that's absolutely it. Um, so whilst you have the right to your beliefs, you don't necessarily have the right to impose those beliefs on others. And as I argued in the blog, you certainly shouldn't assume to have the right to impose those beliefs with a, a pair of scissors or a sharp knife on the genitals of a non-consenting child. So unless you're the kind of person that think, thinks anything religious should demand some sort of automatic or unqualified respect, then, you know, ritual circumcision uh, is something that we should, as a society, I think, consider carefully, because it does represent uh, a violation of the rights of the child. There's a reluctance to compare male circumcision to FGM. Um, This was something that was brought up in the BBC documentary, uh, but it was, uh, even as soon as that happened, I noticed that the presenter referred to the comparison as controversial. Um, what, what do you think explains this reluctance? What's the relationship between the two? Because there are nuances, of course, and so I suppose we want to just unpick that. Um, and do you think the two can be combated together? 
Well, yeah, I mean, let's be clear, FGM is a barbaric practice that needs to be eradicated. Um, millions of girls and women around the world bear the scars, and thankfully, progress is really being made on that issue, I think. And it's understandable that some FGM campaigners, I think, fear that equating infant circumcision, uh, which is lawful and even respected, in some quarters could undermine the efforts to tackle FGM. So the current situa situation we have is that any form of FGM is illegal in the UK, uh, and indeed in many other countries, and typically regarded as barbaric. Now on the other hand, we have this thing called male circumcision, uh, which has, at least until recently anyway, been regarded as something that's quite benign or even beneficial on health grounds, uh, although we have to say that the supposed health benefits are weak, uh, they're contested, and actually largely irrelevant in a Western context. Um, but you know, so to listen to some people, you'd think the two things have absolutely nothing in common. They're totally different. You shouldn't even talk about them in the same breath. Uh, but I don't really buy that. I, you don't need to compare them, but I think it is quite reasonable to point out the similarities between the two practice, practices, because yep. there are, they are many and varied. Um, you know, both involve painful, usually uh, permanent surgery on a non-consenting child. Uh, both procedures vary in severity, um, as many people don't actually realise there are many different forms of FGM. Um, and FGM at its mildest, for want of a better word, is actually less invasive than the average male circumcision. Um, but, you know, both procedures too are medically unnecessary. Um, they both can result in injury, complications and even death. Uh, as we've seen, including here in the UK. Um, you know, so what I'm saying is not about comparing them, but I would suggest that we should take the same consistent and ethical approach to all forms of ritual genital cutting. So there's, a, there's an ethical similarity in the case against male circumcision and the case against FGM, in that both boys and girls, indeed all children, have the right to bodily integrity. And the assumption should be that children's bodies are their own and that uh, if they want to alter them, they can do it when they're older. Um, and, so, and I suppose I would say that making that case consistently strengthens the case against both male circumcision and FGM because it's a clear ethical line that you don't cross. Absolutely. I mean, the principle, what we're saying really is the principle of bodily integrity should apply equally to all children, irrespective of sex. We accept that FGM is a violation of the human rights of girls. So what we're saying is non-therapeutic male circumcision is a violation of the rights of boys. So we've got a gendered double standard in the way the law deals with them. And I think that's what we're saying needs to be addressed. And don't forget that a rising tide of human rights um, will float all boats. So this is something that I think FGM campaigners should be able to get behind. Um, okay, so, uh, so just Megan, turning to you, you've noted that powerful people are often at pains to suggest that FGM has nothing to do with religion. Um, and you recently wrote a blog on our website arguing that this was a misguided view. Do you mind just explaining why? Sure. So I was quite struck by the fact that during discussions in Parliament um, about FGM, politicians would say again and again that FGM has nothing to do with religion. Uh, the reality is FGM does have something to do with religion and there are certain Muslim sects, for example, around the world um, who assert that the reason why they cut their daughters is because they consider it a religious requirement. And no doubt politicians and other stakeholders are well-meaning 
when they say that FGM is not a religious practice. Um, at the local level, campaigners may tell people in communities that practice FGM that it's not a religious requirement to try and deter them from doing it. But what actually happens is that this entrenches the idea that something that's religious cannot be harmful uh, because religions are assumed to be benign or beneficial and so therefore FGM cannot be religious. Um, but this is really quite simplistic thinking. Uh, many religious practices, both past and present, uh, can be very harmful. So denying that harmful practices like FGM have anything to do with religion is a way of shielding religion from criticism. And in turn, that shields male circumcision from criticism because everyone knows that circumcision is strongly connected with religion, and um, particularly Judaism. Um, politicians and other stakeholders need to be braver and they need to call out harmful religious practices rather than just denying that they're religious. So we, we need to tackle this way of thinking, don't we, that religion is automatically a good thing and that religious practices can't be harmful. Um, I think, yes, there's a sort of short-termism about it sometimes, isn't there, where we, I think politicians think to themselves, look, if we say that FGM has nothing to do with religion, then... FGM is seen as further beyond the pale than ever. Obviously, it's beyond the pale in the first place, but it pushes it even further away. Um, and therefore, you know, it, it, we're going ta to tackle that. But it also, I think it also reveals a reluctance to um, challenge people's religious freedom or restrict people's religious freedom. And so that feeds into this narrative that religious freedom is something that is absolute, that is sacrosanct, that you can't challenge, when we all know... But I don't think enough people know, enough people realise that religious freedom is you know, very much a qualified right and can be set aside in certain circumstances. So we, I think we need to be a little bit less squeamish about making clear to people that their religious freedom is not absolute and actually sometimes the state has, uh, has a duty to interfere with that right sometimes, yeah. particularly if it's to, well, only if it's to protect the rights and freedoms of others. Um there is another point as well. Um, I keep hearing that the people who say that FGM has nothing to do with religion often say it's to do with patriarchy. It's to do with subjugating women. Now, the problem with that argument is that every culture that practices FGM also practices male circumcision. So although it might be the case there is a form of, of, of sort of patriarchal control involved here, it goes, it goes deeper than that. There is more going on here because the genitals of both children of both sexes are cut. It's perhaps just more of a fashionable case to make, I suppose. It's it, yeah. Whereas actually saying, look, this this is at least in some cases, or at least to some extent, a religious tradition, but that doesn't make it okay. I think that actually strengthens the case against both FGM and male circumcision. Um, yeah, sometimes we just need to be clear that the state needs to be prepared to stand up to religious practices, um, and so that doesn't mean hiding behind the the sort of cop out that oh, this isn't truly religious because. Sometimes it is. Obviously, any religious challenges to these practices we do welcome, but at the same time, um, pretending that they are not religious is, uh, I think, a fool's errand. So there are differing opinions about how best to bring about an end to infant genital cutting. Um, the presenter of the BBC's documentary uh, concluded that regulation rather than outright legal restrictions would be appropriate. Um, What's your response to that line of argument, and what do you think is the best way to approach this? Well, I suppose there are three approaches you can take. You can just leave well alone, you can regulate the practice, or you can ban it. 
Now, there's no question that bringing in legislation to outlaw genital cutting would be difficult politically, um, particularly in the context of rising anti-Semitism and anti-Muslim bigotry across Europe. Um, but, you know, the idea of regulating a human rights violation doesn't strike me as a sensible way forward either. Circumcision, as with any other religious or cultural tradition, is something that is carried out quite often unthinkingly. Um, you know, this is something we've always done. We do, the, we do things this way because we've always done things this way. So I think what we really need first is a, is a conversation. We need to encourage people to think about this, to question it. Um, and, you know, some people are. Uh, within some Jewish faith traditions, uh, the Brit Shalom ceremony is being uh, increasingly uh, adopted by Jewish parents. Now, this is a ceremony that, um, like infant circumcision, you know, welcomes children into the world, but, but it doesn't involve cutting their, their genitals. So I think the tide is perhaps beginning to turn. This needs to happen. Um, but I think we certainly need to change hearts and minds. Uh, we need to have conversations. We need people to question the practice. And I think that needs to be a precursor to any attempt to outlaw gentle cutting. But ultimately, I think that's where we need to go. I think that campaigners against um, FGM should also be very, very wary about arguments regarding regulation. Um, because advocates of more minor forms of FGM, where only a pinprick incision is made or a small amount of tissue is removed from the clitoris, those people who are advocating for that would argue that if we tolerate a regulated form of um, infant male circumcision, it would be discriminatory to not tolerate a regulated form of FGM. And they'd sort of have a point. But the solution, is obviously, is not to weaken our protection for the rights of girls to bodily integrity. It's to strengthen the protection of both boys and girls from non-consensual forms of um, religious and cultural genital cutting. Yeah, this is something which uh, we're seeing a lot in America in particular, um, where, yeah, there's, there's some con sort of... It's, FGM is managing to become a sort of controversial issue uh, legally. And I think a lot of anti-FGM campaigners would have thought that that was very, very unlikely to happen. And, and it would be horrifying to see, well, it is horrifying to see potentially backward steps on that. But um, as you say, I suppose the, yeah, the logic has to be applied consistently in order to protect children. Um, okay, so Stephen and Megan, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the National Secular Society podcast. Have a look in the show notes for more details on the Bradlaugh Lecture, the articles we've discussed on male circumcision, and links to our website, where you can get involved with the NSS's work. We'll see you next time. <laughs>